0: This podcast episode was with Joseph Selby. Joseph has written a book called The Physics of God where he merges science and spirituality. He talks extensively about the materialist uh, paradigm and and evidence-based discoveries of the scientific world merging them with the ancient experience-based mystics of the past. Uh, In the podcast we spoke about consciousness, spirituality, uh, the physical domain. Uh, Joseph talks about reincarnation, which I question. Here we talk about free will. Again, I question that. Um, And he's also a founding member of the Ananda Foundation, which is uh, like a lineage of, of Paramahansa Yogananda, who wrote an autobiography of a yogi. Love speaking to him. He's a really good guy. Let me know what you think of the podcast. I'll see you soon. Dance. Joseph Selby thank you for joining me on the dancing paradox podcast
1: my pleasure thanks for having me on
0: joseph uh you wrote the book the physics of god now that book i can see in the background there um that's quite a title. It mm-hmm. holds a lot of impact, particularly for me. Could you sort of explain what led you to the point of writing that book?
1: Well, it's been a long lifetime of experience, culminating in writing that book. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of a taste of the, the two sides of me can be gotten from my college years. So. I went off to college uh, at uh, University of Colorado in in Boulder to uh, major in science. That was my intention, that was my thought. I had no idea what kind of career might come out of it, but uh, I had a very science-oriented family, particularly my father. And as I uh, often like to joke, when we would have dinner table conversations, you had to provide references to (laughs) <laughs> prove your point. So uh, my father insisted on a fairly high degree of, of clarity and rationality and, and he himself liked the sciences. My older brother became an engineer. And so I went off to school thinking that was the same thing that would happen to me. Uh, and I was majoring in microbiology within my uh, like second year, third year at, uh, at UC Berkeley, I mean, UC uh, Boulder. Mm-hmm. And then I had a significant uh, experience with hallucinogenic drugs that basically reorient, reoriented me completely toward trying to understand what this profoundly wonderful, positive, heart-opening, peace creating experience was that I had. Uh, I loved it. And yet there was nothing that I knew of that you, you followed up with, right? That, you know, you had that experience, but then you're, you're, you're done. And that led me to seeking things like meditation. Uh, I changed my major from uh, microbiology to uh, Greek studies. And then I went on to transfer to uh, UC Berkeley where I studied um, Indian philosophy and Indian history. And that led me step by step to um, finding a a spiritual community finding the teachings of Paramhansa Yogananda uh, author of the autobiography of a Yogi and living in this community now for almost 50 years. But I never lost the uh, the science side of myself, so it was something I kept close uh, watch on. All the books coming out, uh, I was uh, very excited by Fritjof Capra's uh, "The Tao of Physics," one of the very first books that really made an impact in the in the West. Certainly, that compared science and religion and found the common points of intersection between the two. So many, as you know, probably uh, many books have been written in that same direction, uh, science and spirituality crossovers, that they're generally known as. And for years, I wanted to write such a book, uh, but I had family responsibilities. I started a business that took me all over the world doing uh, web design work and finally kids left home uh i was able to uh step back from that level of of uh, work commitment and began to write so physics of god was one of the first books that i wanted to write i had been you know thinking about what i would say what i could say what people might be interested in for you know literally 45 years
0: Mm. so what what led you to Paramahansa Yogananda? Because I know, uh, I don't know a lot about your story. I read Autobiography of a Yogi a few years ago. What specifically led you to him and that community?
1: You know, it's hard to put uh, a finger on any specific thing. It just seemed to kind of unfold. Um, I had a roommate in college who was very much influenced by the autobiography of a yogi and Yogananda uh, and had been taking lessons from that organization, Yogananda's organization, and that got me meditating and reading more deeply, and then I discovered that a um, direct disciple of Yogananda's had started the Ananda community, and I came to check it out, and and I just loved it once I came here Mm. in a way I never left obviously I left many times I did other things I did Mm. travel for my business I helped started communities in Seattle and in Italy so I was out and about a lot but I really never left the sense of being in the Ananda community and have lived in one or the other of Ananda's various communities for as I say you know coming up on on 50 years
0: wow that's a long time that's like a dedication, a devotion of one's life. Uh, that's what it seems to me here. Yeah.
1: Well, you know it's it's a delightful dedication. Mm. If it were a, a slog the whole time, I, I would have bailed. Yeah. <laughs> it's just uh, living in a community where people are healthy, happy, positively supporting, uh, where you can form wonderful friendships uh is no difficult task at all the dedication is born out of really seeing people blossom and and experiencing within myself more and more satisfaction calmness but also and it's a part of i think spiritual teachings that isn't given enough emphasis Mm -hmm is that it made me successful. It made me concentrated. It made me able to focus my will on things and accomplish what I set out to accomplish. So it enabled me to start a business that ended up with 40 people and took me all over the world. So it's the teachings are powerful. They basically, in, in a nutshell, you can say that meditation and spiritual teachings awaken your awareness of who you really are and who you really are is a powerful being. And I'm not saying I'm a powerful being, don't get me wrong, but uh, the people who are fully awakened by these teachings are amazingly powerful and they're amazingly loving. They're amazingly uh, peaceful in all circumstances. So you it's the best of all possible worlds. It's health, it's prosperity, mm-hmm. and it's happiness. That is you. You are it. It's not something that you build around you mm-hmm. like uh, like some kind of fortress to, to make you happy. It's you realize that you're always happy if you wanna be. You're always healthy if you stay in high energy you're always prosperous if you can concentrate and put your will on things that it's really up to you. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the average lifestyle here at Ananda is, is from a, a point of view of most of the world, very low income, but we don't care. <laughs> because what we really have is high happiness, we may have low income, but we have high happiness. And we have the bil- the ability to if we so chose, uh, develop more income. It's really up to us to make those kind of choices. Uh, so it's, it's wonderful. I mean, if you get me going too, too long here, I'll never stop talking about how great spiritual community is as a, as a way of life. And Yogananda himself said that this kind of model of, uh, of, of living together in, in a spiritually supportive environment would spread like wildfire was the was the term he used mm. and spread all over the world. And it doesn't have to be Yogananda's teachings. It can be spiritual community with any source of inspiration. And and I, I, we see that. We see more and more people who uh, get it and, and see the benefits of living um not as a kind of communal way, but just living in community. Mm. I mean, I own my own house, I have my own family, I have my own business, we're not a commune. It's just a uh, a lifestyle in which your friends Mm. are supportive of your own uh, direction and your own uh, spiritual seeking.
0: I think that's an important distinction to make because a lot of people, seem to think that, uh, particularly Eastern traditions and Eastern philosophy, that it's some form of escape uh, from, from the realities of, of you know some of the suffering that goes on as, as just a normal human being. And um, I mean, I've never experienced that. I've always thought that, uh, similar to you, I've run a couple of my own businesses and it's done nothing but assist in that process. So I don't, I, I've never understood that other than if perhaps they're not viscerally understanding what is actually being shown and taught, why would people would think that?
1: Yeah, well, I, I can see that there are stereotypes that make people uh, have that kind of impression, just as there are stereotypes of the guru um, mm. that is a you know controlling figure Uh, that is very you know is anathema to the the western mind but the stereotypes about a lifestyle you know are often accompanied with people wearing robes and uh, again living in almost monastic like conditions if not indeed monastic conditions and Mm -hmm. it's hard for the average person in the west to see themselves doing that but we're not stereotypical and there are many many Um, spiritual groups who are who who do not fit that stereotype Mm -hmm. they're people that would appear on the street to be you know like everyone else Mm -hmm. they're they're not wearing robes they're not necessarily identifying themselves or evangelizing just by you know reflexive habit about who they are and what they do they're just seemingly normal people going about normal lives but Beneath the surface, they're living a life of trying to draw spiritual power, spiritual consciousness into whatever it is that they do, whether that's working in a business, running a business, Mm -hmm. raising a family, loving their children. They're trying to be more than just normal in the way in which they do all those things. Because when you do that, um, your happiness quotient and your health quotient goes way up.
0: Mm. So the, you mentioned uh, at the beginning, the hallucinogenic drugs. Do you think, uh, I haven't read your book, The Physics of God, I'm not sure if you've mentioned it in the book, but do you believe that that was like an expansion of your consciousness, which has sort of led you to start seeking these other aspects of reality?
1: Well, I'm always very cautious in talking about this because um, in some ways I think I was lucky uh, that I had such a positive experience when it was possible in the day, back in the sixties and seventies when hallucinogenic drugs were sort of discovered in the West and I took them a lot. I had a lot of trips Uh, But it was only really this one that stood out. So I can't recommend to people Mm. that if they take a hallucinogenic drug, especially unsupervised, that they would have the same experience I had. Now, there is a lot being done recently. The um, kind of uh, vilification of hallucinogenic drugs is beginning to diminish and... They're being used in controlled situations uh, with uh, psychologists working with their patients who have uh, significantly blocked emotion, PSTD, or I may have said that wrong, um, that they can't get loose from, that, that they want to, they're aware, that they are blocked or that these, they're in a endlessly repeating cycle of emotional trauma. And they found that the right dose of the right hallucinogenic drug can break this pattern for people, that they can release on a significant level for the first time in who knows how long. And it can be uh, a breakthrough, Uh, it can be life-changing so they're they're starting to be used in in clinical ways, and I applaud that because I do think they're they're very powerful. Um, so, I can't just say, "You know, go buy some on the street yep. and have a have a trip that's going to change your life because chances are that it won't happen. You can even have a bad trip. So be very careful if you're interested in it. It obviously changed my life. Uh, and again, I'd say I feel fortunate because I had other experiences where, that were not so good.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: but it stared me in a direction. Ultimately, what it did for me was it stared me in the direction of trying to find those things and meditation was the main thing mm. that could be a doorway to that same experience, but without the drug.
0: Yeah. So meditation, uh, would I be right in saying that, that, that that's been a part of your life for the 50 years that you've been a part of this community?
1: Yeah, definitely. A, meditation that's... is the, is the key mm. that Yogananda, you know, that's where he starts. He starts with meditate and he goes from there, but uh, meditation is, you know, as I, as I say in the introduction to my book, uh, Western teachings, Western philosophies describe food, but meditation allows you to actually eat food. <laughs> it's, uh, it makes spiritual teachings real. And without meditation, um, spiritual teachings are just an intellectual exercise, for the most part, uh, that you can talk about where you where you might go, what it means to be a um, you know an infinite being yourself, but it's just talk, it's just thought, mm-hmm. unless you meditate and experience it directly in your own mind and heart
0: is there any specific meditations that you do or is it, is it simply just, um, you know, th- watching, observing thoughts?
1: Um, that is kind of a starting point. Uh, Yogananda brought to the West, uh, a several different meditation techniques and, the uh, the one that he, uh, freely offered first for people to become, um, you know, get get started and learn how to meditate is called the hung saw technique hung okay. h-o-n-g and saw s-a-u uh, hung saw literally means i am spirit and you repeat that those uh those sounds in coordination with your breath so when you inhale you mentally chant so hung and when you exhale you mentally chant So so it's a little bit like mindfulness, but it's more focused. And you try instead of just watching your thoughts, you watch your breath, and you just keep the mind focused by chanting Hong and saw with inhalation and exhalation. And you begin to concentrate more and more at the point between the eyebrows. Um, Yogananda also offered a uh, technique called the OM technique which um, I don't want to take all our time explaining what each one of them is. And then the one that um, he was significantly charged by his teacher to bring to the West is called Kriya Yoga. And Kriya Yoga is a pranayama technique where you don't merely let the breath do whatever it's going to do and watch it, you direct the breath in a very uh, powerful way to bring your energy up to the point between the eyebrows and it results in a profound stilling of the body and a profound focus of the mind. And it will, in my experience, um, take one as deep as you can go.
0: Okay. I'll have to check that out. Uh, um, Let's talk a little bit about consciousness itself. Now, a very broad question and something that's probably asked of science and spirituality alike. What is consciousness to you?
1: Well, let me give um, two different views. Let me give you the, the scientific view. Mm-hmm. the view of uh, scientists who are uh, wedded to the, what's called scientific materialism and scientific materialism in a nutshell, is just the the conviction, the belief uh, held by many scientists, but, but by no means all scientists, mm-hmm. but by many scientists that matter and energy are the only realities that there, there is nothing else. And so, Given that uh, foundation of, of attitude, mm-hmm. they are convinced that the brain convinces uh, or, or creates consciousness from some kind of matter-energy interaction uh, taking place in the neurons of the brain. And that uh, it kind of kicks into being like a like a car engine starting when you're born. And the neurons start firing and that is your consciousness and within your consciousness is uh, intelligence and thought and emotion Mm -hmm. the problem is for scientific materialists is that they're not finding any way in which the brain is actually creating consciousness it's an article of faith with them that Consciousness is created by the brain because what else could it be created by, right? If you believe matter and energy are the only possibilities, then the brain has to be the creator of consciousness. But they're not finding it. And they're getting, if anything, in a way further from finding it because many of the theories they put forward have failed to materialize any actual proof. And so recently, what has started to be a, a an answer that you know allows them to escape these other theories that aren't working is that every atom includes consciousness. just in the same way that that atom includes spin, and uh, polarity. It also includes consciousness. That that consciousness is innate to matter. And this is this is known as um, uh, panpsychism. That uh, everything is conscious inherently, and that there are various theories put forward by scientists that therefore. Man has some way, in some way evolved to connect the most atoms in the brain in a way still un, unsolved that takes advantage of this innate consciousness and therefore a consciousness springs into being. But it still doesn't really work, and they're still kind of um, you know groping for some answer or hypothesis even that will explain how um, atoms that are dowered with consciousness can turn into the consciousness that we experience every day. Mm -hmm. But there are, as I mentioned, many scientists who are not wedded to this notion that it has to be everything has to be explained only by matter and energy. Uh, who put forward, you know, a hundred years ago, that consciousness creates matter, not the other way around, that consciousness is the foundation of all reality. And that everything we know, all of creation, that is this matter and energy interaction, uh, writ large, actually is not only created but sustained, by consciousness. This is really hard for us, most of us, to, to visualize. You know, how can this evanescent uh, intangible, unseeable consciousness be so powerful as to create everything there is? But this was the conclusion of physicists like Heisenberg mm-hmm. and Bohm and uh, other leading lights of the kind of a pioneering days when uh, quantum physics was discovered, that they saw no other answer than that consciousness pre-existed matter because uh, primarily of what's known as the double-slit experiment that showed uh, that an intelligent observer is required for matter to behave like matter. That if there is no intelligent observer present, matter behaves like a wave. Not only does it behave like a wave, but it exists in non-duality. It exists in a, a realm that does not obey the laws of our local, physical realm so these are deep waters and in some ways this is the heart of the the book the physics of god is that uh non-locality that was not just hypothesized by quantum physicists but became a necessary part of their equations if the equations that they developed to describe the uh, Behavior of matter, which they have done extremely successfully. There is no science more accurately able to uh, predict the behavior of matter than quantum physics. But at the same time, those equations rely on this concept that there is a non-local realm that is two-dimensional, spaceless, dimensionless and that all matter exists in that realm as a waveform until it's observed and then it starts to behave like a particle. So this is kind of mind blowing uh, for most people to, to realize that the most successful scientific or I should say physics theory quantum physics relies on there being a realm of reality beyond the physical. that otherwise, they can't make the various curious behaviors of matter understandable without that. And so there you have what's known as quantum weirdness. You have the um, observer paradox and you have entanglement. Mm -hmm. So entanglement which uh, is fascinating and has been uh, kind of out in the popular mind for a long time, Mm -hmm. says that if you have connected two particles or two photons, and the original experiments involved photons because they were the um, first way they figured out how to test this experiment, so basically, if you if you shoot a photon at mirrors that are at angles to each other like that, or I guess better to show it this way, and the photon hits the peak of this angle, it literally splits. And those two halves of the photon, which become lower energy photons, I won't try to describe why that's so, but they become lower energy photons and then they go at the speed of light in opposite directions. Now, because of the observer paradox, a anything, whether it's a photon um, or a atom, or any part of an atom, won't manifest in its physical form unless it's observed. And when you split this photon into two, they know that uh, they're gonna form opposite characteristics to each other. So they'll have opposite spin, opposite polarity. And yet until one of these photons that's racing away from the other at the speed of light, until one of them is observed, they don't know which one has which polarity they don't know they don't know the characteristics of either of them until they observe one and the moment they observe one they know through experimentation that the other one will be the opposite always you never have the case where when you split the photon that you observe one and you observe the other and they're the same uh polarity or the same spin uh i I actually don't think spin applies to photons so i may get that wrong Uh, but this opened up a huge paradox because what it was saying is that information could travel from one split photon to the other faster than the speed of light And according to uh, the fundamental laws of physics that uh, Einstein came up with, there's nothing that can travel faster than the speed of light. So how is it possible? And in theory, these photons could be halfway across the universe from each other and you would still have the same thing happen. But you observe one and then the other would be exactly the opposite no matter how far apart they were. This is explainable if you understand that they're not traveling through space. They're they're in non-locality and they're motionless and there's never any distance between those two photons. Mm. So when you observe one of them, it becomes local where it was non-local the instant before you observed it. And therefore the other one knows exactly what polarity, the first one is, right? Because they were right there together in non-locality in a a spaceless realm. Mm. So these things are hard to grasp. And what I tried to do in my book, The Physics of God was explain them in such a way that they were easier to grasp and to really call attention to how profound a concept non-locality is and how it affects everything in physics today. Um, The the later disciplines of physics after quantum physics that came along, particularly string theory and the most uh, uh, accepted version of string theory, which is called M theory, all depend on non-locality for their equations, for the way in which they think the universe that we live in behaves. It's fundamental to the way our universe behaves. Mm
0: -hmm. So, Joseph, I've got a question based on that there. Is what you're talking about essentially beyond knowledge? Can we actually know that, let's say, truth, for the lack of a better word?
1: Yes, I think we can. Um, When you're meditating and having experiences of more and more subtle realities, you can, in fact, experience that non-local realm what that non-local realm is in uh, the experience of a actual mind as opposed to a mathematical construct of physics is what's known as the astral realms, what's known as the heavens. It's a two-dimensional pure energy, light-filled domain, a realm that is Far larger than the physical universe. And that this is why we can have life after death. Because there is, uh, as I say in the book, we are multidimensional beings. We simultaneously now and always, we have one foot on Earth and one foot in the heavens. Just in the same way that the universe depends on the notion of non-locality for its very existence. So too, we depend on our uh, more subtle body to be interacting with our physical body in order for our physical body to function. But when we die, we just drop the physical body and we remain in our subtle energy body that exists in a non-local realm. And that non-local realm is is the heavens. So we can very much experience non-locality, as you asked. Uh, it, we We experience it in a way all the time. We have our Two sides of ourselves, we have our one foot on earth and our one foot on heaven, we experience the one foot on earth through the senses, you know, we have this physical body that we can touch, we can look around ourselves, we can listen, and we can bring in uh, impressions of the sense through the senses of the physical world in which we move and, and act. But simultaneously, we're thinking, we're feeling, we're aware, all those are the product of, uh, or at least arise within our heavenly body, our one foot in heaven. Mm -hmm. So when we die, and the physical body dies, we have the same consciousness, we have the same Ability to think we have the same ability to feel emotions and we even have a exact but perfect counterpart to our physical body. That we always have we have it now the difference when we die is that we won't have the physical body then, but we have that awareness of the non local realms continuously, we just don't realize it. One of the things that happens in meditation is we realize more and more that we have this subtle body because we have subtler and subtler experiences. Um, In a nutshell, how that happens is that when you meditate, you become less aware of your physical body. If you sit still, unmoving, for even 10 minutes, what and with your eyes closed, what you will feel is that it's, it's like you're more, you're expanding beyond what the boundaries of the physical body uh, would, would suggest. And your awareness expands along with your you know, perceptions and your feelings. Just know that you're more. And the longer you do it, the more you experience of this subtle body. And the, when you come out of meditation, it also enhances your experience of the physical body. It makes you clearer in mind. It makes you more concentrated, it makes you healthier because you're relaxed it gives you more energy because your your subtle body that you have all the time is is really just pure life force and it animates this body and the more awareness you have of the life force at a subtle level the more you feel it and, and can use it mm. through the physical body so that's the long answer to your question yes okay. we can experience nonlocality <laughs> and in fact it's the you know maybe the most important thing hmm. that we experience
0: so you know uh, it's it's a, it's a commonly held let's say belief because i don't think it can be proven i've never proved it to myself that one cannot uh, uh, experience their own death uh, so let's suppose uh someone dies in their in the astral realm say are they aware that they have let's say shed the body or or are they not aware of that does that make sense
1: well i wouldn't be able to even um guess if it weren't for uh near-death experiencers Mm -hmm. and there was a, a pew study uh conducted a long time ago that, you know, like in the 70s or 80s, that indicated more than 8 million people had had near-death experiences. And as you know, there's a a raft of books written by people who have had near-death experiences. And one of the things that I think makes them compelling, they're controversial. There's a lot of people who try to debunk them and say that uh, what they experienced was just kind of the, the last gasp of their brainstem creating some hallucin- hallucination that they experienced. And then they came back from flatline and regained their consciousness and didn't die. And they never really died if they had, according to scientific materialists, when you're dead, you're dead, right? There's no, there's no return. But in fact, if you read about just the the, the physical side of near-death experiencers, they can have been flatlined for minutes, hours, and then come back. But regardless of what scientific instruments can share, the most compelling part of it is that, they have a very similar story they tell. And there are thousands of them that you can find and read, many of them online. Some of them get close to leaving the body. They feel themselves going down a tunnel of light and then they get drawn back into their body. Others go all the way through this tunnel of light and come into an amazing light. That they describe as, you know, piercing them, but without pain, with, in fact, tremendous sense of relief and peace and well-being. Others get past even this stage, and they begin to uh, see other beings like themselves in uh, the same kind of body that they're used to seeing people in. Although they know that they are. Uh, perfect bodies, they're healthy, they're uh, filled with light, they're filled with vitality, and the people who they're meeting are bright lights, bright intelligences, and they have conversations with them and they get tours around the heavens. And eventually all of them are drawn back to their body, otherwise we wouldn't know anything about their experiences by some decision of their own or need of their own to go back and finish this life. Some of them, uh, which I find comical in a way, uh, refuse to go back. (laughs) They say, I don't want to leave here. Who who, who but a fool would want to leave this feeling of joy and love that's in the air and the, the beauties and the wonders that I've seen. And they have to be talked into understanding that they need to finish something important or they need to be there often uh, for their children to guide their children in a very important way that they might not get if they weren't there. And whether willingly or suddenly or grudgingly or unhappily, they're drawn back into their bodies. And sometimes their bodies are, you know, they died for a reason. Sometimes they've been badly burnt. Sometimes they've been in an automobile wreck and their their limbs are fractured and they come back into uh, cancer and they have a very, very rough road hoe. But they all say that having had that experience gives them an entirely different, feeling as they go through these experiences not just a mental attitude but they no longer fear death they no longer fear pain really they don't welcome pain they no longer fear it and they know that there's a purpose to their life that's deeper than anything they had ever known before Um, they have a equanimity they have a calmness about living. And it allows them to live better. Mm -hmm. Much of the reason why people are not living the life they want to live is they're in a tense jumble of resistance toward the life they have. And until you can live the life you have well, it's very difficult to live a life that you want. live a different lifestyle or to you know get out of the rat race as people often say but the rat race is all in your mind the tension you have about being in the rat race is all in your own heart it has nothing to do fundamentally nothing to do with the life you're leading on an outward way in an outward way it has everything to do with how you're responding to and reacting to the life you're in. And that jumble is eased by these near-death experiencers, sometimes in profound ways. They just come back completely accepting of whatever life is giving them, whether it's hard, whether it's easy. And it's moving to read there. Uh, accounts of near death and the, and their return, because they're different people coming back, but there are different people coming back into exactly the same life they left. They don't, for the most part, leave the life they're in, they just live the life that they have in a much more satisfying way.
0: Mm-hmm. I remember reading Anita Morjani uh, those mm-hmm. years ago, Don't Be Me, yeah, and that was fascinating. I think that um, death is. Uh, in my life that has sort of played the the role and the um the catapult that has completely moved my direction towards something more meaningful to me mine wasn't a physical death it was more of an identity death um I don't know what's going to be more painful the physical or the identity it was very very painful experience well I've had that numerous times now on, on uh I've done ayahuasca a couple of times. That it happens during those ceremonies, and I think that that uh, I think that b- becoming comfortable with death brings about that natural equanimity that you you spoke about there. There's nothing really that can shake you and overly stress you, other than like natural stresses. Off that middle point, that's what I've found in. Uh, when I work with like athletes uh, on like a consultancy basis when you can bring the people into that state of equanimity very often it's being okay with what's happening regardless of the external circumstances once people can get into that state they're sort of unshakable in the face of anything that life throws at them and uh, that near-death experiences seem to be a trigger point for a lot of people. But as you say, if you just read their work, read their books, um, they're very impactful, very impactful indeed. Uh, Joseph, the struggles in life, uh, you, I read a, I think I watched a YouTube video of yours and you you basically said that you can be happy all of the time. Um, could you expand on that somewhat?
1: Well, uh, much of what we've already been talking about, mm. Uh, points to that how that's possible
0: Mm.
1: we just get so caught up naturally i don't mean to this to sound in any way judgmental because i i not only have shared it before coming on to the spiritual path but i've shared it many times even on my path that it's easy to end up feeling beset by the circumstances around you, uh, the pressures of needing to make money, um, strained relationships, uh, just pure challenges to your your willpower uh, of of having to do things and feeling like you know you hear people say there's just not enough of me to to do this, Um, and yet you're confronted with having to do it. So it's easy to see why uh, we end up feeling stressed rather than happy. Mm. And then we begin to think, the only way I'm gonna get away from this stress is if I get away from this life but I can't get away from this life. I have a I have a life partner. Mm-hmm. I have friends, I have children, I have a home that I need to pay for, or whatever it is. And you go back and forth in this sort of cogn- cognitive dissonance that you think the answer is, I wanna get away from it all, and yet I can't get away from it all. And I wanna get away from it all, and I can't get away from it all, you know? Mm-hmm. So, where do you go from there? Uh, you obviously don't have the kind of most of us don't have the ability to leave it behind and go somewhere else and start over. Even those who do probably will find that they bring with them the same kind of cognitive dissonance. You know, they they end up recreating the same problems in a new place. So. Mm. Really what you need to do is stop creating the problems which have to do with wanting things to come out in a certain way and wanting people to be different than they are. Now, those are easy to say, hard to make a habit of behavior, but if you can, It'll change your whole experience of life. Love people, support people, no matter how they are. And if you can't do it in an obvious way, uh, just accept that they are the way they are.
0: Hmm.
1: And accept your circumstances. They are, at least for now, the way they are. What are you going to do about them in a positive way? How can you make um, what you're doing feel better to you, even though you still have to do the same thing? I really wanna uh, stress how much importance meditation plays in that. Because in meditation, you can get yourself to the point where you relax, you let go of stresses and strains and you go a step beyond that and you can feel that at least in that part of your meditation, you feel good. And gradually you can learn to take that release of stress and good feeling and and take it into your day.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I'm not by any means wanting to say that you meditate once today for your first time in your life and you can feel what you need to feel and go back in your life and make everything better it's not an instant fix but it is the best long-term fix to living a happy life find the happiness within in meditation take it out into your daily life and then it's real, you're not just saying, okay, okay, John, I, I accept you, <laughs> even though you annoy the hell out of me, I accept you, John. If it's just that at a mental level, you're still going to feel the annoyance, right, in your heart of hearts. And it's going to have a very, you have a very difficult time changing your experience life just by affirming that you're accepting John. It's a good starting point. But ultimately, where you will get to, if you meditate, is that you genuinely accept John. You can even be amused by John. You can, Not that you laugh at him, but in your heart of hearts, you can say, well, John is being true to his annoying self, you know, that was Today was the most annoying version of John I have ever experienced. Mm. You get some distance from the Johns in your life. And another thing that doesn't always happen, I don't want to, make, I don't want to sound like a Pollyanna, but sometimes because you accept John, John becomes easier with you. The John is less annoying because you're accepting him and in a very real way accepting someone is loving them you're not being loving toward them in a outward way that would probably make John laugh at you or angry at you or if nothing else completely bewildered by you but accepting John is a very powerful stance of love it's saying you know whatever you do John I'm okay with it This is this is the point of poise. This is the midpoint, I think, as you use the term uh, to deal with everyone. It's not a point you get to immediately, but you can get to it. And that point of acceptance of everyone and everything going on in your life goes a long way to letting you relax and feel less stress. Mm
0: I always think, Joseph, that we're not necessarily seeking happiness. We're seeking a sense of inner peace. Yeah. And that happiness, I'd, if I was happy all the time, I'd get bored, to be honest. But there's whatever goes on around me, there's always that stability. I don't, it's sort of wordless, ineffable. I'm not sure how, how, how to uh, say it. And uh happiness is is sort of a, it seems to be a byproduct of that rather than the other way around. That's how it seems to be in my life.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it's just a it's a matter of definition. I mean, you're defining what you really want as that centered peace. Mm. But if you are centered and at peace, I would say you can't be happy.
0: I'd agree with so, that. Yeah. Mm.
1: So it's it's just a matter of of what you're defining and what you're seeking you know Mm -hmm. i don't think happiness can also sound uh, insipid to people they want dynamism they want vitality they don't want to be happy they want to be just a a meteor of energy in their life and that too is a part of happiness i think Mm -hmm. but regardless of how you define it what you really want is always going to come from within whether it's that meteoric energy, whether it's being centered and poised, whether it's uh, peak performance in in sports, that all emerges from within. And it's never the same, it's never boring, it's never passive, it's dynamic and active. Um, Even if it's on, on the level of pure feeling, feelings aren't static. Feelings are ever-changing. And in fact, Yogananda's definition of God is ever-new joy. That what we're seeking in ourselves is this everlasting, never-changing feeling. And that is God. When we have that forever, we have God. People tend to think of God as a being separate from us uh, or as an anthropomorphic God like the one painted on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. But we're one with God. God is one with us. And the way in which we experience God most satisfactorily, most profoundly satisfactorily, is when we know god as ever new joy and that's when i refer to you can go deeper and deeper in meditation that is the depth that you know i aspire to have yet to uh, accomplish by any means always but i've had enough of a taste of it that i'll never give up trying Mm -hmm. to go deeper Mm -hmm. that that ever new joy suffuses my being, it floods through my day as I do my work, as I write, Uh, and with it comes peace, with it comes love, with it comes concentration. Um, It is the most satisfying, animating, um, enriching experience that I have ever touched on and I know that there is so much more.
0: Mm.
1: Read the lives of saints. They are, they're in bliss. They're in joy. Always. Do you read the stories of uh, near-death experiencers and what they come away from uh, often with their experience of the heavens is that the heavens are just joyful. They're filled to the brim with joy and with love. And that Even though they don't keep it entirely, when they come back from that, they never forget it.
0: Mm. You're writing a book at the moment called The Psychology of God, I believe.
1: Well, actually, it started its life as that and now it has become um, more focused on neuroscience. Mm. It's coming out this fall. It's called Break Through the Limits of the Brain. So... Our brain is this amazing instrument that without which we could not walk or talk or eat or function in this physical world. When we're children, uh, we can't do any of those things. When we're first born, we have to start uh, wiring the brain through action. Every time we do an action, the brain will start to wire to support it. So children learn to hold things, to move, uh, eventually to walk and talk. And when they do all those things, they're wiring the brain so that they can function in the physical world. But because most of us don't have any additional training when we're growing up, we wire the brain exclusively to function in the physical world. And we don't do any wiring to make contact with the non-local higher subtle realms. Even though we have this dual existence, we don't pay any attention to our subtler self. So what we need to do and what meditation does do is it rewires parts of the brain so we can be aware of the subtle realities as well as the physical realities, but it's it's a bit of an uphill struggle because we've on on several levels. One, we've not only have we wired our uh, physical brain to support physical actions. We don't have any non physical experience, so it makes us very skeptical. You know, we're very adept at operating in the physical world but when you bump into teachings or you hear a talk like i'm giving there's just this really skeptical part of the brain that says well i don't experience any of that all i experience is the senses so can god really exist do i have any higher potential and the brain keeps saying i don't see it (laughs) the brain is just saying look all you can do is is function in this world that you can manage through the senses. So you have to break through that limit. Um, And the best tool to break through that limit of the brain is meditation. And as you meditate, the brain obligingly uh, creates circuits, neural circuits that help you be aware of uh, your higher self. The The brain isn't your higher self, but it will allow you to do those things that allow you to concentrate, be focused and and experience internally your higher self, but you have to rewire. And if you embrace teachings just intellectually but don't rewire, they're just thoughts about yourself. They're not a direct experience of your higher self. So this is what the book is about. It talks about, uh, explores a lot of how the brain works and what it is and what it isn't, you know, that it doesn't create consciousness, that it doesn't create thoughts or uh, emotion, that they, even though you think your brain is doing it, they're actually coming from this other body, uh, this subtle body that is Interpen- interpenetratingly present with the physical body, there is no distance of any real kind between those two bodies. But you can have more awareness on the physical, which is what most people do. So it's it's really a it's a leap for most people. And you know, there are a lot of people. My father years and years ago said, "You know, I would like to believe in God." I would like for there to be this higher reality, but I just don't see it, <laughs> essentially what he said. I, just don't, I don't see it intervening in people's lives. I don't have any uh, direct experience of it. And he was right, but he wasn't completely right. That if you want to experience God, you can. There's absolutely nothing that will stop you. If you want to experience your own higher potentials in God, there's nothing that will stop you. You have free will. You've got the ability. You can rewire the brain. You can have these uh, wonderful experiences that uh, the saints and sages, mystics talk about. You are just like them. All of us are just like them. The only difference is that while they were visiting, they rewired their brains so that they could have awareness of both. They could be aware of transcendent realities beyond the body and simultaneously aware of the body. They could, they could use the body just as well as any of us uh, use ours. But they also broke through that limitation that the brain imposes and became aware of um, infinite potential, infinite reality, infinite joy. And then they, because they know it, they want to tell us about it. They want to teach us about it. It's so good, they want to share it. And saints and sages come and go, but they keep sharing the same message that there's a, a, vast and wonderful reality beyond what the senses reveal to you and you just you can reach it if you will if you can convince yourself if you can become convinced that uh it's worth doing you can find it you can experience it it can change your life
0: yeah yeah um you mentioned that Free will, and that's like a philosophical uh, question. I think that, and religious one, that many people can fall into. Um, the reason I asked it, the reason I bring that up, is because uh, it, people seem to to um, wake up, if you like, very often spontaneously and without any real will to do so. To what degree does free will play in that awakening process?
1: Right. That's a good question. And, and one, as you say, that has, you know, been a philosophical discussion for thousands of years. It's, you know, what, what is free will and how free is it? And why, as you say, do uh, some people spontaneously become aware of their higher potential or, People ask, you know, why would a, why would a baby uh, contract COVID and die? You know, what, what in any of that gives us free will? And I think the only way you can see it and the only way it can make sense is if you embrace reincarnation. The idea that the life you're leading now is just one in a very long series of lives and that you bring with you into a life knowledge tendencies karma and karma has been grossly misunderstood by uh, the west since it you know first came into the west's awareness back in like the 19 early 19 mm-hmm. uh, hundreds, 20th century, but essentially karma is a set of inclinations and desires that you want to try to work out. And that some of those inclinations and desires can only be worked out in a physical body and in a physical world. So you need to be here for those uh, karmic inclinations to, to be able to happen. But they also, because they're set in motion from previous lives, they can affect this life unexpectedly. So you may have had built up really strong inclinations and strong uh, expansions of your consciousness in a previous life And in this life, they kind of pop into existence suddenly, seemingly. But in fact, they're just a a natural next step of things you've already done in previous lives. Reincarnation, again, just like the notion that there is higher consciousness, there is God, is hard for people to embrace. Um, If you don't think that there's any life after death at all you're gonna have a hard time (laughs) embracing the notion that reincarnation has made you you know have many many lives after death so it's a leap if you don't already at least have some openness to the notion that you're more than a physical body that you live on in some way after death
0: yeah so what end joseph is reincarnation then to what end to to ascend for the lack of a better term or
1: to ascend i mean the the basic notion of reincarnation is that in life after life we we try to find our essence in all the wrong places that we need to work out through perhaps thousands of lives Maybe even millions of lives as a human, how to find happiness. And until we wake up to the reality that the happiness we seek, the ever new joy that we want, isn't the product of fulfilling ambitions for uh, having possessions, for having fame, for having wealth, uh, for accomplishing this or accomplishing that uh, or having, and this is a big one, having the kind of relationships that we think we need in order to be happy, that we want other people to make us happy. We expect other people to love us. And gradually, like a, a, a school with not five or 10 or 20 grades, but thousands of grades. We work our way up through this school of learning uh, until we reach, you know, the uh, advanced degrees where we realize that yes, we can do all these things that we're capable of amazing things. I imagine as an athlete, you had great satisfaction in being able to do whatever it was. I'm guessing maybe football was one of your sports, that you could make that ball do anything you wanted. And you could get it in the goal with a kind of absolute joyful satisfaction. In the higher grades, we realized that that higher satisfaction was only uh, the 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 background feeling we had to that accomplishment but yet we could we could have that feeling of joyful accomplishment continuously without having to develop that control of a of a, a football and mm. put it into the goal that we learn more and more that we are these amazingly powerful beings who can accomplish anything they want But as long as we depend on that accomplishment to make us happy or to to depend on just the perfect relationship to make us happy that we're always going to be let down Mm -hmm. because we're not always going to have the opportunity to make that amazing goal or to have that success in business or to have a relationship that is always giving us what we want. Eventually, you learn you have to turn it around, you have to give energy, you have to be the one in the relationship that makes the other person happy. That you have to be the one in your business that makes people feel empowered and happy and uh, you have to give to your students, the knowledge uh, that your, are the, the people you're consulting in your uh, sports consulting that you have to give them the essence of what it is to be successful. You have to give them the way of finding that extra concentration and that extra clarity and that relaxation of peak experience that many, many uh, high level people in sports achieve routinely. They just get into another zone all the time. And all of these combine to give us eventually our graduating papers (laughs) that we can function dynamically in this world. And at the same time feel the presence of God feel the presence of ever new joy, to have the transcendent awareness simultaneously in whatever we're doing. And this is an amazing state, and it's not one that I have. I don't want anybody to to think I'm describing my day to day awareness, but I am describing something that i have have enough experiences here and there in my outer life and definitely in my meditation that i have no doubt any longer that it is possible to achieve Mm.
0: okay and then you don't
1: reincarnate anymore then you get to stay in this amazing higher realm of the heavens
0: that the, the astral realms as you say
1: yes Now, the astral realms too, I hesitate to bring this up because I don't want anybody to get depressed. But even the astral realms also have a gradation and that once you earn the right to stay in the astral realms forever, instead of having to incarnate in a physical body and learn some more and then die and go to the astral regions and then incarnate and learn some more. Eventually you graduate from that, but then there are lessons to continue to learn in the astral regions that that expand your already a profoundly expanded consciousness even more until you have no body. You you need no body. You're not attached to anything enough to need a body any longer, but you never lose awareness of yourself as an individual as a Yogananda's teacher put it, you merge without any loss of individuality. you become the infinite and yet you're still aware of your separateness you're one you're aware of your oneness you're aware of your separateness, you're aware of your oneness mm-hmm. it the mind can't comprehend what that experience is but many people fear the reason i bring it up is many people think well if i become one with god i'm just gone right i'm snuffed out as any kind of separate person so i kind of like being a separate person why would i do that you know why would i give up this wonderful high potential in its ultimate moment i just disappear i mean who wants that But you don't, you become the highest possible that you can become with the most joy, with the most wisdom, with the most awareness of the universe and the astral regions and everything, all of creation. And yet you're also aware of your perfect unity with God.
0: I think that's a great place to leave it, Joseph. We've been on air in 10th, air in 15 minutes, I think. And uh, I've loved talking to you. Um, A wealth of information and knowledge. And uh, I'll keep my eye out for your next book. What was it called again?
1: Breakthrough the Limits of the Brain. It's coming out in um, September of this year.
0: Okay. Just writing that down. Okay, uh, I'll be sure to to acquire that. Um, Is there your work or anything anywhere you want to point people towards?
1: Um, I have a website that um, you can get to by uh, josephselby.com. Just my name, josephselby.com. will take you to my website and um, find more information my books, you'll find articles I've written, other interviews I've had, and uh, in my books, I point a lot of people to um, Ananda.org, which is the website that has uh, everything about meditation I've been talking about, you know, where to find it, how to practice hung saw, Uh, more information about the Om technique and Kriya Yoga, uh, more about Ananda, more about Yogananda, founder Kriyananda. So if you want to have a deep dive into many of the things I've been talking to, uh, Ananda.org website is a great place uh, to go to learn more.
0: Wonderful. Joseph Salbi, thank you for joining me.
1: It's been my pleasure, Alex, and uh, let's do it again.
0: Yeah, sure thing. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.